Section 34 of Library of the World's Best Literature, Ancient and Modern, Volume 13. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rita Boutros. Library of the World's Best Literature, Ancient and Modern, Volume 13. Section 34. The Prisoners, from Romola, by George Eliot. In 1493 the rumour spread and became louder and louder that Charles the Eighth of France was about to cross the Alps with a mighty army, and the Italian populations, accustomed since Italy had ceased to be the heart of the Roman Empire, to look for an arbitrator from afar, began vaguely to regard his coming as a means of avenging their wrongs and redressing their grievances and in that rumour savonarola had heard the assurance that his prophecy was being verified what was it that filled the ears of the prophets of old but the distant tread of foreign armies coming to do the work of justice he no longer looked vaguely to the horizon for the coming storm he pointed to the rising cloud the french army was that new deluge which was to purify the earth from iniquity the french king charles the eighth was the instrument elected by god as cyrus had been of old and all men who desired good rather than evil were to rejoice in his coming for the scourge would fall destructively on the impenitent alone let any city of italy let florence above all florence beloved of god since to its ear the warning voice had been specially sent repent and turn from its ways like nineveh of old and the storm-cloud would roll over it and leave only refreshing raindrops fra geralamo's word was powerful yet now that the new cyrus had already been three months in italy and was not far from the gates of florence his presence was expected there with mixed feelings in which fear and distrust certainly predominated at present it was not understood that he had redressed any grievances and the florentines clearly had nothing to thank him for he held their strong frontier fortresses which piero de medici had given up to him without securing any honourable terms in return he had done nothing to quell the alarming revolt of pisa which had been encouraged by his presence to throw off the florentine yoke and orders even with a prophet at their head could win no assurance from him except that he would settle everything when he was once within the walls of florence still there was the satisfaction of knowing that the exasperating piero de medici had been fairly pelted out for the ignominious surrender of the fortresses and in that act of energy the spirit of the republic had recovered some of its old fire the preparations for the equivocal guest were not entirely those of a city resigned to submission behind the bright drapery and banners symbolical of joy there were preparations of another sort made with common accord by government and people well hidden within walls there were hired soldiers of the republic hastily called in from the surrounding districts 
there were old arms duly furbished and sharp tools and heavy cudgels laid carefully at hand to be snatched up on short notice there were excellent boards and stakes to form barricades upon occasion and a good supply of stones to make a surprising hail from the upper windows above all there were people very strongly in the humour for fighting any personage who might be supposed to have designs of hectoring over them they having lately tasted that new pleasure with much relish this humour was not diminished by the sight of occasional parties of frenchmen coming beforehand to choose their quarters with a hawk perhaps on their left wrist and metaphorically speaking a piece of chalk in their right hand to mark italian doors withal especially as creditable historians imply that many sons of france were at that time characterized by something approaching to a swagger which must have whetted the florentine appetite for a little stone throwing and this was the temper of florence on the morning of the seventeenth of november fourteen ninety four the sky was grey but that made little difference in the piazza del duomo which was covered with its holiday sky of blue drapery and its constellations of yellow lilies and coats of arms the sheaves of banners were unfurled at the angles of the baptistery but there was no carpet yet on the steps of the duomo for the marble was being trodden by numerous feet that were not at all exceptional it was the hour of the advent sermons and the very same reasons which had flushed the streets with holiday colour were reasons why the preaching in the duomo could least of all be dispensed with but not all the feet in the piazza were hastening towards the steps. People of high and low degree were moving to and fro with the brisk pace of men who had errands before them. Groups of talkers were thickly scattered, some willing to be late for the sermon, and others content not to hear it at all. The expression on the faces of these apparent loungers was not that of men who are enjoying the pleasant laziness of an opening holiday. Some were in close and eager discussion, others were listening with keen interest to a single spokesman, and yet from time to time turned round with a scanning glance at any new passer-by. At the corner looking towards the Via de Seratani, just where the artificial rainbow light of the piazza ceased, and the grey morning fell on the sombre stone houses, there was a remarkable cluster of the working people, most of them bearing on their dress or persons the signs of their daily labour, and almost all of them carrying some weapon, or some tool which might serve as a weapon upon occasion standing in the grey light of the street with bare brawny arms and soiled garments they made all the more striking the transition from the brightness of the piazza they were listening to the thin notary ser sioni who had just paused on his way to the duomo his biting words could get only a contemptuous reception two years and a half before in the mercato but now he spoke with the more complacent humour of a man whose party is uppermost, and who is conscious of some influence with the people. 
"'Never talk to me,' he was saying in his incisive voice. "'Never talk to me of bloodthirsty Swiss or fierce French infantry. "'They might as well be in the narrow passes of the mountains as in our streets. "'And peasants have destroyed the finest armies of our condottieri in time past, "'when they had once got them between steep precipices. "'I tell you, Florentines need be afraid of no army in their own streets.' "'That's true, Ser Sioni,' said a man whose arms and hands were discoloured by crimson dye, which looked like bloodstains, and who had a small hatchet stuck in his belt. "'And those French cavaliers who came in, squaring themselves in their smart doublets the other day, saw a sample of the dinner we could serve up for them. I was carrying my cloth in Ognesanti when I saw my fine Messeri going by, looking round as if they thought the houses of the Vespucci and the Agli a poor pick of loadings for them, and eyeing us Florentines, like top-knotted cocks as they are, as if they pitied us, because we didn't know how to strut. "'Yes, my fine galley,' says I, "'stick out your stomachs. "'I've got a meat-axe in my belt "'that will go inside you all the easier. "'When presently the old cow lowed, "'and I knew something had happened, no matter what. "'So I threw my cloth in at the first doorway "'and took hold of my meat-axe "'and ran after my fine cavaliers "'towards the Vigna Nuova.' and what is it guccio said i when he came up with me i think it's the medici coming back said guccio bembe i expected so and up we reared a barricade and the frenchmen looked behind and saw themselves in a trap and up comes a good swarm of our chiampi and one of them with a big scythe he had in his hand mowed off one of the fine cavalier's feathers it's true and the lasses peppered a few stones down to frighten them. However, Piero de' Medici wasn't come after all, and it was a pity, for we'd have left him neither legs nor wings to go away with again. "'Well spoken, Odo,' said a young butcher, with his knife at his belt. "'And it's my belief Piero will be a good while before he wants to come back, for he looked as frightened as a hunted chicken when we hustled and pelted him in the piazza.' he's a coward else he might have made a better stand when he got his horsemen but we'll swallow no medici any more whatever else the french king wants to make us swallow but i like not those french cannon they talk of said goro none the less fat for two years additional grievances san giovanni defend us if messer domenedio means so well by us as your freight says he does sir sioni why shouldn't he have sent the french another way to naples ay goro said the dyer that's a question worth putting thou art not such a pumpkin-head as i took thee for why thee might have gone to naples by bologna eh sir sioni or if they'd gone to arezzo we wouldn't have minded their going to arezzo "'Fools! It will be for the good and glory of Florence,' Ser Sioni began. But he was interrupted by the exclamation, "'Look there!' which burst from several voices at once, while the faces were all turned to a party who were advancing along the Via de Serratani. "'It's Lorenzo Tornabuoni, and one of the French noblemen who are in his house,' said Ser Sioni, in some contempt at this interruption. 
he pretends to look well satisfied that deep tonabuoni but he's a medician in his heart mind that the advancing party was rather a brilliant one for there was not only the distinguished presence of lorenzo tornabuoni and the splendid costume of the frenchman with his elaborately displayed white linen and gorgeous embroidery there were two other florentines of high birth in handsome dresses donned for the coming procession and on the left hand of the frenchman was a figure that was not to be eclipsed by any amount of intention or brocade a figure we have often seen before he wore nothing but black for he was in mourning but the black was presently to be covered by a red mantle for he too was to walk in procession as latin secretary to the ten tito melamont had become conspicuously serviceable in the intercourse with the french guests from his familiarity with southern italy and his readiness in the french tongue which he had spoken in his early youth, and he had paid more than one visit to the French camp at Signa. The luster of good fortune was upon him. He was smiling, listening, and explaining, with his usual graceful, unpretentious ease, and only a very keen eye bent on studying him could have marked a certain amount of change in him which was not to be accounted for by the lapse of eighteen months it was that change which comes from the final departure of moral youthfulness from the distinct self-conscious adoption of a part in life the lines of the face were as soft as ever the eyes as pellucid but something was gone something as indefinable as the changes in the morning twilight the frenchman was gathering instructions concerning ceremonial before riding back to signa and now he was going to have a final survey of the Piazza del Duomo, where the royal procession was to pause for religious purposes. The distinguished party attracted the notice of all eyes as it entered the piazza, but the gaze was not entirely cordial and admiring. There were remarks not altogether elusive and mysterious to the Frenchman's hoof-shaped shoes, delicate flattery of royal superfluity in toes, and there was no care that certain snarlings at Medicians should be strictly inaudible. But Lorenzo Tornabuoni possessed that power of dissembling annoyance which is demanded in a man who courts popularity, and Tito, besides his natural disposition to overcome ill-will by good humor, had the unimpassioned feeling of the alien towards names and details that move the deepest passions of the native. Arrived where they could get a good oblique view of the Duomo, the party paused. The festoons and devices placed over the central doorway excited some demur, and Tornabuoni beckoned to Piero di Cosimo, who, as was usual with him at this hour, was lounging in front of Nello's shop. There was soon an animated discussion, and it became highly amusing from the Frenchman's astonishment at Piero's odd pungency of statement, which Tito translated literally. Even snarling onlookers became curious, and their faces began to wear the half-smiling, half-humiliated expression of people who are not within hearing of the joke which is producing infectious laughter. 
It was a delightful moment for Tito, for he was the only one of the party who could have made so amusing an interpreter, and without any disposition to triumphant self-gratulation he revelled in the sense that he was an object of liking, he basked in approving glances. The rainbow light fell about the laughing group, and the grave church-goers had all disappeared within the walls. It seemed as if the piazza had been decorated for a real Florentine holiday. Meanwhile, in the grey light of the unadorned streets, there were oncomers who made no show of linen and brocade, and whose humour was far from merry. Here, too, the French dress and hoofed shoes were conspicuous, but they were being pressed upon by a large and larger number of non-admiring Florentines. In the van of the crowd were three men in scanty clothing. Each had his hands bound together by a cord, and a rope was fastened round his neck and body in such a way that he who held the extremity of the rope might easily check any rebellious movement by the threat of throttling. The men who held the ropes were French soldiers, and by broken Italian phrases and strokes from the knotted end of the rope, they from time to time stimulated their prisoners to beg. Two of them were obedient, and to every Florentine they had encountered had held out their bound hands and said in piteous tones, For the love of God and the Holy Madonna, give us something towards our ransom. We are Tuscans, we were made prisoners in Lunigiana. But the third man remained obstinately silent under all the strokes of the knotted cord. He was very different in aspect from his two fellow prisoners. They were young and hardy, and in the scant clothing which the avarice of their captors had left them, looked like vulgar, sturdy mendicants. But he had passed the boundary of old age, and could hardly be less than four or five and sixty. His beard, which had grown long in neglect, and the hair which fell thick and straight round his baldness, were nearly white. His thick-set figure was still firm and upright, though emaciated, and seemed to express energy in spite of age, an expression that was partly carried out in the dark eyes and strong dark eyebrows, which had a strangely isolated intensity of color in the midst of his yellow, bloodless, deep-wrinkled face with its lank gray hairs and yet there was something fitful in the eyes which contradicted the occasional flash of energy. After looking round with quick fierceness at windows and faces, they fell again with a lost and wandering look. But his lips were motionless, and he held his hands resolutely down. He would not beg. This sight had been witnessed by the Florentines with growing exasperation. Many, standing at their doors, or passing quietly along, had at once given money. Some, in half-automatic response, to an appeal in the name of God. Others, in that unquestioning awe of the French soldiery, which had been created by the reports of their cruel warfare, and on which the French themselves counted as a guarantee of immunity in their acts of insolence, 
but as the group had proceeded farther into the heart of the city the compliance had gradually disappeared and the soldiers found themselves escorted by a gathering troop of men and boys who kept up a chorus of exclamations sufficiently intelligible to foreign ears without any interpreter the soldiers themselves began to dislike their position for with a strong inclination to use their weapons they were checked by the necessity for keeping a secure hold on their prisoners and they were now hurrying along in the hope of finding shelter in a hostelry french dogs bullock feet snatch their pikes from them cut the cords and make them run for their prisoners they'll run as fast as geese don't you see they're web-footed these were the cries which the soldiers vaguely understood to be jeers and probably threats but everyone seemed disposed to give invitations of this spirited kind rather than to act upon them santidio here's a sight said the dyer as soon as he had divined the meaning of the advancing tumult and the fools do nothing but hoot come along he added snatching his axe from his belt and running to join the crowd followed by the butcher and all the rest of his companions except goro who hastily retreated up a narrow passage the sight of the dyer running forward with blood-red arms and axe uplifted and with his cluster of rough companions behind him had a stimulating effect on the crowd not that he did anything else than pass beyond the soldiers and thrust himself well among his fellow-citizens flourishing his axe but he served as a stirring symbol of street fighting like the waving of a well-known gonfalon and the first sign that fire was ready to burst out was something as rapid as a little leaping tongue of flame it was an act of the conjurer's impish lad lalo who was dancing and jeering in front of the ingenuous boys that made the majority of the crowd lalo had no great compassion for the prisoners but being conscious of an excellent knife which was his unfailing companion it had seemed to him from the first that to jump forward cut a rope and leap back again before the soldier who held it could use his weapon would be an amusing and dexterous piece of mischief and now when the people began to hoot and jostle more vigorously lalo felt that his moment was come he was close to the eldest prisoner in an instant he had cut the cord run old one he piped in the prisoner's ear as soon as the cord was in two and himself set the example of running as if he were helped along with wings like a scared fowl the prisoner's sensations were not too slow for him to seize the opportunity the idea of escape had been continually present with him and he had gathered fresh hope from the temper of the crowd he ran at once but his speed would hardly have sufficed for him if the florentines had not instantaneously rushed between him and his captor he ran on into the piazza but he quickly heard the tramp of feet behind him for the other two prisoners had been released and the soldiers were struggling and fighting their way after them in such tardigrade fashion as their hoof-shaped shoes would allow impeded but not very resolutely attacked by the people one of the two younger prisoners turned up the borgo de san lorenzo 
and thus made a partial diversion of the hubbub but the main struggle was still towards the piazza where all eyes were turned on it with alarmed curiosity the cause could not be precisely guessed for the french dress was screened by the impending crowd an escape of prisoners said lorenzo tornabuoni as he and his party turned round just against the steps of the duomo and saw a prisoner rushing by them the people are not content with having emptied the bargello the other day if there is no other authority in sight they must fall on the sibiri and secure freedom to thieves ah there is a french soldier that is more serious the soldier he saw was struggling along on the north side of the piazza, but the object of his pursuit had taken the other direction. That object was the eldest prisoner, who had wheeled round the baptistry and was running towards the Duomo, determined to take refuge in that sanctuary rather than trust to his speed. But in mounting the steps his foot received a shock, he was precipitated towards the group of signori whose backs were turned to him and was only able to recover his balance as he clutched one of them by the arm it was tito melema who felt that clutch he turned his head and saw the face of his adoptive father valdesari calvo close to his own the two men looked at each other silent as death baldassari with dark fierceness and a tightening grip of the soiled worn hands on the velvet-clad arm tito with cheeks and lips all bloodless fascinated by terror it seemed a long while to them it was but a moment the first sound tito heard was the short laugh of piero de cosimo who stood close by him and was the only person that could see his face ha ha i know what a ghost should be now this is another escaped prisoner said lorenzo tornabuoni who is he i wonder some madman surely said tito he hardly knew how the words had come to his lips there are moments when our passions speak and decide for us and we seem to stand by and wonder they carry in them an inspiration of crime that in one instant does the work of premeditation the two men had not taken their eyes off each other and it seemed to tito when he had spoken that some magical poison had darted from baldassari's eyes and that he felt it rushing through his veins but the next instant the grasp on his arm had relaxed and baldassari had disappeared within the church End of section 34